This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Millat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 3. This season, you will get the privilege of meeting the formerly incarcerated and those who mentor, employ, and restore hope into their lives. I am partnering with Defy Ventures to bring you this dynamic series that will teach us what the journey looks like for life after prison. My guest today is Darlene Luca. Not only is she the Southern California Career and Reentry Program Manager for Defy Ventures, she also has three years of incarceration experience herself. This is a woman with a genuine heart full of compassion for those hurt, broken souls on the street, in the prisons, and those newly released from prison. She understands the allure of gang life because she used to be in one since the age of 12. She connects with their fear, loneliness, and rejection. There is no judgment in her. She's been given a second chance to right her wrongs, learn from her mistakes, and become the best version of herself. She just keeps giving, encouraging, volunteering, educating, and affirming the value and worth of everyone around her. This is her story. Darlene, I'm super thankful that you're joining me today to share your story, and I can't wait to hear what you have to teach us and share with us today. Thank you. I'm excited. Well, to get to know you on a fun level, I want to know if you could time travel and go anywhere in history or the future at any time, um, where would it be and why? I think I I would want to go back into history and learn about like my ancestors. Uh Um, Yeah. So um, I'm part Guatemalan and part Filipino and I grew up mostly with my Filipino side. So I would want to learn more about like my grandfather's grandfather, you know? Yes. Um, So I just recently learned about this place in Guatemala called Chicabal which is um, like a sacred lake out uh-huh. there. Um, and the Mayan people, like they consider this, this lake really sacred from like, you know, decades, decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really would, would want to learn like their traditions and, and um, their ceremonies because I feel like I'm attracted to that that's the place I would want to visit. And I heard it's like really beautiful, misty cloud around the Mm -hmm. fort. They they say that it's because of like all of the ceremony and all of the like ancestors that protect the space. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes. Yes. I find it fascinating how many people want to learn more about their own history and the generations before them. Because like, if we know that we have a better sense of ourselves, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. So true because like growing up, like I didn't really care about it. Right. But becoming an adult and just wanting to know why I'm attracted to certain things, why Mm -hmm. things like move me, like 
it, it's like, where does that come from? And the more that we know about our history, like you said, the more that we know about ourselves and, and make those connections, mm -hmm. you know, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel more grounded. Yes. So with Guatemalan and Filipino roots, do you speak either of those languages? I don't. Don't. Okay. Yeah. I always tell my parents, like, I could have grew, uh, grew up with, like, three different languages. Yeah. They all, it's funny because they always argued when I was uh, younger um, about what language we should learn, mm -hmm. you know, me and my, my siblings. So we just stuck with English, I guess. Th that's something that you don't regret or appreciate until you're an adult anyways, right? Yeah, that's so yeah. So much of our stories start with our parents' stories. Would you mind telling me some of your background and your home of origin and what, would, what it was like growing up being you and how your parents met and just how Darlene came to be an adult? So my parents, they both migrated here from their um, you know, place of origin. My dad, again, from Guatemala and my mom from the Philippines. Um, and they met... Well, the story that they tell me is that they met in a, a convalescent home that they both were working at. My mom was a um, like a nurse's aide and my mm -hmm. dad was, um, he worked in maintenance. And he says that my mom was like asking him to teach her how to drive. And so he agreed and then he was like, and then since then I couldn't get her out of my car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cute. So they kind of got you know, stuck together. And uh, um, I'm the youngest of four. Growing up with like immigrant parents was really difficult as an American child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, so they were like really rooted in their ways, um, very stuck in like this old school culture. And, mm -hmm. you know, like both Guatemala and the Philippines, they're very poor countries, you know, so they kind of had that mindset of like just always working, working hard, working, you know, long hours to support and raise kids. We grew up poor, but I didn't know that we were poor until somebody pointed it out. Yes, <laughs> I hear that a lot. There's so much love and care in the home that you don't recognize your physical needs or wants as such until, like you said, it's pointed out. Yeah, I mostly grew up with my mom's side of the family. They were, he, all of them, like all of her, her siblings were here. My aunts and uncles and cousins were out here. Um, it, but it was also really difficult just being a mixed child. Mm, um, really? Yeah, because like, you know, in the Philippines or what has always been shared with me is that when you're of like, darker skin tone then you're not as you're not viewed as like valued or beautiful like you know you you'd have to have like mm -hmm. the lighter skin tone mm -hmm. too you'd be a, a mestizo and that's a good thing right that's crazy that every culture has this idea of lighter is better i mean i've heard this from almost every culture that I've met. That's yeah. just so sad. I'm sorry you experienced that. <laughs> yeah. And so like, because I grew up mostly like literally like the black sheep of the family, 
because also in the Philippines, like girls are not as valued as mm -hmm. boys, mm -hmm. right? I always felt like I knew I was different. I knew that I, I was being treated different. I was being looked at differently. I mean, for the most part, my, my parents were really loving, um, but I felt it all around me, you know? And then um, at a young age, my parents, you know, just being working class people, they, they worked a lot, right? So there was nobody really in the home, but me and my brothers and my sister. That must have been hard to process the disparity of not hearing these kind, loving, encouraging words and not having that affirmation that you're worthy or knowing that somehow you're different or not as accepted. How did you process that? I don't know if I really did or if I just, I think that that's when like the low self-esteem started to kick in just really young because, you know, I was always like my skin tone was always pointed out to me, like been playing out in the sun too long. Like, you know, you're no. just being dark or you're black. They'll like, you know, they'll say like, oh, you're black. And like they would say it as something really negative. And so um, or because I wasn't skinny like I've always been like a thick girl kid you know um, that was always pointed out so I think just very young um, that just killed my self-esteem so I didn't sure. very good like self-value growing up and or even positive ideas of darker skin colors I mean yeah. anything that's darker skin color is a negative connotation to you not just it's just another color right yeah. How unfortunate, what a horrible mindset to have um, almost like taught by osmosis to you. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, my, my coping strategy at that age was, um, I thought I was ignoring it, right? But, you know, it was just to be out of the house, like to be mm -hmm. away from others, mm -hmm. um, kind of like isolating myself to, so that I wouldn't have to deal with things like that. I found myself, you know, just gravitating to people who I thought looked more like me. And, you know, I, I was introduced to like the streets and like the gang lifestyle, like really young. Mm. So did your parents have any idea? You know, I can't really say because they weren't in the home a mm. lot because they, they worked so much. Um, and at one point they moved us out uh into another house where they literally were not there monday through friday oh, <laughs> i would no. see them on saturday and sunday and then when i would see them on those days i was i was trying to leave the house you know uh-huh so it was like this 12 year old little girl um or younger just trying to find my way back to a community that i felt comfortable in and that was like my neighborhood like that mm -hmm. was the streets like the gangs mm -hmm. the gang that i got involved in they have like a filipino side like a hispanic side so i felt really comfortable i felt like oh this is my community like these are yes. my people you know i recently heard that before like this is where this is the place where people feel at home 
because yeah. nobody else is accepting them. And I don't know that the general public understands this about the allure of gang life. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think that like the general public just thinks that we want to commit crimes um, or just be violent or just like, you know, terrorize a community, but that wasn't it at all. Like the whole reason why I joined was, was not, the thoughts weren't to just like, oh, I want to go rob a store. I want to go right on a wall. It was mm -hmm. because I felt safe. I felt accepted. I felt welcome, you know, like any kid, I think I'm a, I'm a parent now, you know, mm -hmm. I'm a mom. And so I always think about my children's safety. And I always think like, I need to make sure that my kids know that point A is home. You know, mm -hmm. they could always come back and mm -hmm. they could always feel comfortable and safe. And like, that's what the, the gang provided me, like that comfortability, that welcomeness, that acceptance that I wasn't getting from my own family. Mm -hmm. It wasn't to, to do anything else. I didn't even like to drink, like how people pr like think that we're just out there like doing drugs and drinking and yeah, that comes later on. Yeah. It, it, it just like, as people come together, like, you know, they, they find different things to do, but that wasn't the reason why I was drawn, you know? Mm -hmm. So was it your affiliation with, gang life that led you to now you have incarceration experience right yes so yes. was that that affiliation that led to that or was it completely removed from that yeah i eventually it did it um the affiliation did you know lead me to make these unhealthy choices right these bad mm -hmm. choices but again i think also it was because like i was just trying to be a kid trying to fit in yeah trying to be accepted but yeah what led up to my incarceration it was part of like you know being being in a gang but you know it was also like a choice that i i made and i knew it wasn't the right choice um so i was incarcerated for a couple of robberies um i was 16 years old mm -hmm. It, it's kind of stupid because I had a job. I, it's not like oh. I needed to go out there. I felt this need to go rob somebody. Mm -hmm. I knew it was wrong. And that wasn't my character. I followed my, my peers, you know, eventually yeah. yeah. I followed my peers and, and I still wanted that acceptance. I still, you know, there was all these other things that were going on inside of me. Um, that I didn't know how to cope with. So mm -hmm. I felt the best way to cope with the things that I was dealing with was to be on the streets, to make these irrational decisions, you know? Mm -hmm. When and how did you identify these traumas and past choices, these things that led to negative behaviors when and how did you identify those and start healing from that? Like, how old do you think you were? I don't think the healing from trauma, like, I didn't even recognize that I, I experienced trauma until way later in, in my life. Yes, I regretted what I did. Any crime that I took part in, I regretted. 
I knew was wrong, but I didn't understand that I was healing from like that my the the fact that I was sexually sexually abused, I didn't realize that that was trauma and that it was coming out in different ways, mm-hmm. right? I didn't realize that I felt abandoned as a kid. Mm-hmm. I I didn't realize those traumas until like maybe like into adulthood until I had my own children and I realized yeah. that. Um, I was continuing to carry these, these pains, you know, I knew, I'm sorry. I was going to say, it sounds like it's a continual healing process. There's not a one point in time where you can look back and say, yes, I identified it. And we are on, you know, the path upward and onward. Like it's an ongoing evolution. It sounds like. It is. I mean, I don't think healing is linear, you know, there so many different things that I've just shut off because I didn't know how to deal with it. And even just our talk right now, just thinking about like some things that, that resurfaced that I didn't realize that they're still there. Right. Like those feelings. So I don't think healing is ever linear. And sometimes I have good days and sometimes I have bad days. Right. (laughs) Like we all do, but I fully didn't understand that I needed to heal from these things until I was well into my adulthood. Mm. Um, children, having your own children really does bring a lot of healing though, doesn't it? Yes. You get to almost kind of reparent yourself. As much as you love your parents, sometimes you, and then we put them on this pedestal, you see where they failed and what mm. you lacked and you kind of are doing it all over again. That's the beauty of parenting, huh? Yeah, definitely. Like. I was a young parent when I had my first child. So I was incarcerated for three years. It was this huge push on youth being tried as adults. Mm. So originally, I was supposed to receive a life sentence. So um, A life sentence for robbery? Yeah, it was, it was several robberies. How does anybody learn from their mistake if you get sent to jail for the rest of your life. I don't understand that. Yeah. I mean, I don't either, but there was this whole notion that we were irredeemable, you know? That's awful. That just spoke to the same fear you had growing up of I'm not enough. My skin color is not right. I don't fit in. That's a horrible message for you to hear on top of everything else, those other layers that you were already dealing with, that you were not redeemable. How can another human say that to somebody else, especially a youth whose brain is still not fully formed? Yeah. I look at my daughter right now, right? And and she's 16. So she Mm -hmm. was the age that I was when I was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. You know, she comes trotting into the living room a couple of nights ago in her uh, Cartoon Network sweater. Right. So this is just a 16 year old. And I looked at her and she's about to turn 17 this month. And I was having a conversation with someone and I I said, my daughter is the age that I was fighting a life sentence. Oh, here is this 16 year old kid in a cartoon network sweater. You know, like what made me so different from her? Mm hmm. 
right? Where right. I, I was anyone fighting for you? Like you would fight for your daughter. It didn't feel like it. Mm-hmm. it didn't feel like anybody was. I mean, my mom was present uh, during my court hearings, but I didn't understand anything that the judge was saying or the prosecutors were saying. I was just standing there because I couldn't comprehend any of it. You know, what 16-year-olds can comprehend all these this judicial lingo. So after my incarceration and, and I came home and I think people don't even realize that that in itself, like having to go through that um, is trauma. Oh, you know? that's so true. I'm assuming the general public sees it as this is your punishment. You should just take it and then move forward and yeah. not seeing it as a massive trauma because it's a very hostile environment that you're in. Yeah. And then all the reinforcement of everything that people have painted you out to be, you know, there was this article that came out when I was um, going through my trial where um, it was this times article. And the reason why they were pushing these uh, minors to be tried as an adult is because we were called super predators. It was during the time where they said, lock us up and throw away the key, you know, because we're monsters. What message is that? I mean, Seriously, it just seems like it's a Band-Aid instead of going to the root of the problem, that, that need to be accepted, that need of community, that need to, need to be told you're enough, that you matter. Yeah, and I think that what we lacked was like that safety. We didn't have that safe. We didn't feel safe, mm-hmm. you know? I think that we just needed to feel safe. Mm-hmm. We needed to feel like we were we had value. Yes. It wasn't there. The, the juvenile justice system did nothing to, to help us feel that we had any value. Even the adult system, you know, I, I, I just think about when I was going through trial and, you know, they eventually decided to charge me as an adult. They would put us on the bus with other adults. And um, this was like the sheriff's bus. I was, you know, the 16-year-old little girl in Mm -hmm. an orange jumpsuit. And we were shackled from our hands to our feet and around our waist. And because we were in a bus with adults, um, they placed me in a separate cage. So I was in the front of the bus in a cage. And then it was all the other adults. I mean, we just really need to sit with that for a minute and imagine ourselves in your shoes because I cannot imagine the fear and the feelings going through you at that time. I don't know that any adult could handle being separated and ostracized and made to feel the shame that comes with all of that. I cannot imagine what was going through your mind and the fear that was just heavy on your shoulders. I was afraid. I couldn't show it, right? Like you can't mm-hmm. show both emotions. Yeah, you have to put a mask on. <laughs> yeah. And how many years have I lived with a mask on? But here I was, this uh, 16-year-old little girl in shackles, having no control. And I had already experienced sexual abuse from males. There in the back of the bus were all males, adult oh. males. 
that fear coming through me all over again of not being able to defend myself, not being able, not having control of anything whatsoever. Like, yeah, there was a, a, a sheriff on the bus, but still we we have adult i have adult males in back of me mm-hmm. just whistling cat calling everything that you could think of just like experiencing this sexual harassment all over again mm-hmm. you know, was terrifying just reliving your trauma just every day all of it and then also experiencing more trauma just in that right yes yes sitting in the cage that's why I say I, I didn't even realize that I was experiencing trauma, that I even had to heal from any of that until I was an adult because I didn't, I wasn't able to make those connections. This season is brought to you by Defy Ventures. They are a national nonprofit with a beautiful vision of cutting recidivism in half by leveraging entrepreneurship to increase economic opportunity and to transform lives. Defy's programs are helping currently and formerly incarcerated people across this country defy the odds by providing pathways that lead to employment, entrepreneurship, and a successful re-entry please visit Defy's website at defyventures.org and sign up for their mailing list to stay in the loop. Links to Defy's website and social media can be found in the show notes. When did you start feeling hope? Uh, Was it at a point while you were serving your time? Did you meet Defy Ventures in the prison or was it once you were released? Like when did hope sneak back into your life and tell you you're more than your worst mistake? Well, I was lucky enough to get involved with um, this creative writing class while I was facing, uh, while I was fighting my, my case. And that's when I started to feel a little glimmer of hope. Mm -hmm. There was this Catholic chaplain who would always come by and talk to us. And he, his name is Javier. And he, um, just the way that he spoke to us made me feel like, oh, you know, somebody cares. Like I have value. Mm -hmm. I'm enough for somebody to take the time to, to care, to talk to me, right? Mm-hmm. To ask me how I'm doing, to ask me how my day was or how court was, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think it was those moments, those little seeds that were given to me. I, I also, I wasn't, I didn't get the life sentence. <laughs> Thank God. Thank right? God, yes. <laughs> so I think that gave me more hope mm-hmm. that, Everybody else around me was receiving life sentences, and I didn't. So mm-hmm. I actually I made it my mission to help other people. Like when I got out, like I knew that I was spared for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. I actually I didn't meet Defy until I want to say a couple of years ago in doing reentry work. So when I came home, I. 
found that my passion was speaking to young people and helping them just navigate through like a difficult life and and try to guide them not to make the same mistakes that I did or decisions that I did. And um, it sounds like you became the person you wish you had in your life at that age. Yeah. That's very inspiring. I love that. Yeah. I had really great mentors after my incarceration, which gave me the hope to do the work and, and just um, answer the call. Like I felt like there's a calling, right, for me yes. to help people through incarceration and as they come home. So I didn't meet Defy until a couple of years ago as I'm doing like re-entry work with people coming out of prison. I learned about them through one of the guys that was on my caseload and he was sharing with me about all of the amazing entrepreneur skills that he, he uh, learned um, and how he wanted to start a t-shirt company. And I've always tried to make it a point to go back to prison and volunteer. Like people think I'm crazy, but. <laughs> yeah. Why would you want to go back when you finally got out? For sure. I can see that. <laughs> it's your heart though. I can see it all over your face. It's too bad that people can't see your face right now. Just that glowing smile. There's zero trace of resentment or bitterness or anger. You just have this very peaceful, joyous feel about you, this aura. And mm. I can tell that that's possibly what you're bringing back in when you go back to, to volunteer. I hope so, because, you know, if it wasn't for a volunteer to share with me and show me that I had value, I just want to give that back. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, he spoke to your heart, your yeah. deepest need, and you want to be that person to do that for you someone do, else. Because I think we're all valuable, like despite you know the mistakes that we make, we're not born bad people, right? Like we have some innate, like beautiful abilities and and characteristics. Like some of us have just been misguided. Mm -hmm. I just want to tell people, like, and share and show people that. They're valued, they're loved, people like, you know, they're enough, they're needed in our community. Yes. Well, right? that's definitely going to go down as your quote for this show. That's beautiful. <laughs> you're not born bad, you're valued and needed. And I can tell that's what you believe with your whole heart and life. And that's what you give out to others. And yeah. I'm so glad you came to see that in yourself so that you could impact the lives of other people that you recognize walking down that, that path that you previously trudged, sadly. Yeah. Do you feel that the formerly incarcerated and incarcerated population are um, a marginalized group? If so, why? If not, why not? I do. I, I, I feel that they are a marginalized group. They, you know, most of us never got to receive some of the services or resources that some other communities have been able to, or because we grew up in um, working class neighborhoods, they weren't as accessible to us. Mm -hmm. It you sounds know? like you're saying that you see classism plays a huge role 
in why so many people of color and the, for lack of a better word, working poor and, and that class of people ends up getting the raw end of the deal because of classism, it sounds like. Yeah. You know, my, my parents were really hardworking individuals and um, they took pride in, in the work that they did. The schools that we went to were not always in the greatest neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, there weren't like after positive after school programs, you know, walking home from school was dangerous. Mm, none of us want that for our kids. Nobody. We don't want, I never wanted that for my kids, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, it's funny because even though I didn't have like the means to raise my kids in, in a higher class neighborhood and like in a middle class neighborhood, mm -hmm. um, I found neutral areas. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, that's, that's a good way to say it. Yes. <laughs> Non-dangerous. Yes. Neutral. Yes. <laughs> Because I didn't want them to experience what I experienced. You know, I didn't want For them sure. to go home in, in fear because I understood those connections, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I made it a choice to raise my kids a certain way. I feel like they have, they have much more opportunities than mm. I did. That's all any parent hopes for their kids, right? Yeah. So... Your work with Defy, you are the Southern California Career and Reentry Program Manager. How yes. did you land that incredible job that's perfect for you? And how has this impacted your life and the life of your family? I've been doing reentry work for over 10 years. Mm. So, you found um, your niche. <laughs> I did find my niche, and it's. Um, it's been really beautiful working with people coming out of prison and jails. When I landed the position at Defy, I mean, I think I, it, it was just a blessing because I felt that where I was at, like how I understood me, like what I was able to give, like Defy really recognized that as well. The work that I do is is um, trauma-informed and I think that they have that understanding and that space to provide trauma-informed care after um, when people get released, right? Like they know that their program mm -hmm. is really powerful mm -hmm. inside, right? Yes, yes. Development and learning how to, um, you know, be a CEO to your, your new life, but also the connection out here was really important. So I was just really blessed to meet the right people and show them like the work that I've been able to do in the communities and, and the partnerships um, mm -hmm. that I've made, the relationships and how it's changed my life. I feel like Defy is a space where I could be creative. That's fantastic to hear. Not a lot of people say that about their job. I know. That's encouraging. They're really like such an empowering um organization i mean like the affirmations are like off the chart that i'm not used to <laughs> uh -huh. that's beautiful you're making up for lost time with all the affirmation now right you know they've just in enriched my life um in these last couple of months that i i feel like i have ownership 
over um, the Southern California region and, you know, just being able to welcome these men and women home after mm -hmm. incarceration has just been a gift this whole time. Um, I get to meet some really amazing people and hear their their stories, but mm -hmm. I of of challenge. But I also get to celebrate with them, like all of the amazing work that they're doing out here, the businesses that they're opening, and just the individuals that they're becoming, that they're growing into. This is who we are meant to be, you know. Mm -hmm. Yes. Again, we weren't we weren't born bad. We were just misguided, and and now people are stepping into who they are, and um, it's really such such a blessing for me to yeah to be a part of. Has this impacted your daughter's life at all when she sees this and hears these stories? And how I'm curious because of her very vulnerable age right now. How has your job and the stories you come home and share impacted her life? My kids are very, like, they're socially aware. I believe that my daughter is going to be a great advocate. Her emotional intelligence is, is amazing and the way that she does research and um, how she shares with other peers, you know, some of the stories that I've brought home or the challenges of, of young people that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. um, I think it just has helped all of them become the like independent little warriors that they are. That is incredible. Look what came out of your story. Could you have imagined when you're standing in that cage in the bus, the beauty that was going to, the legacy you were going to leave. That's just incredible. That really makes me happy for you. Thank you. I couldn't imagine that things would turn out this way, but as I'm stepping into, um, I'm about to turn 40 this month, and I've just been doing a lot of like reflection these last mm -hmm. couple of days, and just the fact that I've been able to accomplish the things that I have. Yes. And raise the kids that I have. Yes. Just accepting me. I love my skin. I love my body. I, I'm starting to love my hair. This is definitely the decade of self-acceptance. Yes, that's a great way to phrase it. I'm curious about one more thing. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know if you could give any advice to the general public about our justice system and incarcerated people. What would you want to tell them? Because I think you have a voice of experience that matters and you have your finger on the pulse. And so what you say has value and goes a long way. So what could you tell us um, that we should know that we don't know? Maybe just give us a chance. Mm. It's a good way That's to phrase right. it. It's that simple, isn't it? Yeah. Just stepping into humanity and, and knowing that we're not all perfect we have flaws, but we're still good. Yes, so at our core. The chance to share and show, you know, mm -hmm. but a real chance. Okay, you're on the home stretch. These are fast, easy questions. 
well, I don't know, my opinion. <laughs> what is your one tip to make the world a better place? Uh, lead with love. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like you've given that tip multiple times. <laughs> I try. <laughs> Good. That's awesome. What are you the most thankful for right now? Accepting who I am. I'm just like, I'm thankful I'm in this space now. Mm -hmm. It's really loving me. Mm -hmm. I don't think people really understand the depth of how important that is. Because oh. you can't really love others if you don't accept yourself. And uh, that coming to that place of that self-awareness, it's a truly beautiful place to be. It feels good. Good. I like hearing <laughs> you say that. Uh, lastly, what is your favorite quote? Uh, that's hard because I have so many. <laughs> I hear you. It's okay if you want to give more than one. I will take that too. So there's two that are like just stick out in my head. One I have tattooed on me. It's, um, it's life without liberty is like a body without spirit. And um, Oh, wow. <laughs> that's oh, my like, goodness. Uh, one of my favorite poets, his name is um, Khalil Gibran. Oh, I love Khalil. Yes. Yes. And the prophet. Yes. Does this quote come from the prophet or from one of his other books? I think from one of his other books. Okay. Yeah, I don't think it comes from the prophet. Yeah. He's one of my favorite um, authors yeah. and uh, writers. So, and also um, there's this quote that I try to live by. It's a, uh, be a lamp or a lifeboat or a ladder help someone's soul heal, walk out of your house like a shepherd. And that's by Rumi. Man, you're going heavy and deep now with Khalil and Rumi. And you have it memorized, which is awesome. <laughs> I have to like look in my app and scroll down. That's really good. Good for you. Tattooed on me, so. Oh. <laughs> Maybe that's, that's the answer. Maybe I need to get my favorite quotes tattooed. I love it. Okay, now I just have to determine which of these like 150 quotes do I want on my body. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That was kind of difficult. <laughs> I, it must have been, but you chose some really incredible people. Well, you are certainly a joy and um, an inspiration to me. Uh, your story is just beautiful. You have all types of value and worth in this life and you're giving it back in such huge amounts of generosity. I really appreciate the time you took to be vulnerable and share your story and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. It's, it's always an honor to just share and, and to just have this space and um, thank you for just allowing me to and inviting me mm -hmm. to share my story. I really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. I was deeply touched by the simple yet profound recognition that Darlene so eloquently gave voice to. Healing is not linear. If you stop and think about it, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? None of us deal with an issue and then move on and check it off our list. It keeps resurfacing and sneaking up on us throughout our lives. This is why we seek out friends and therapists to talk to. This is why we get depressed. This is why we often get stuck in cycles of unhealthy thinking. Giving ourselves permission to heal over and over again 
even if it's something we thought we dealt with already, is incredibly freeing. Darlene danced around the ideas of socioeconomic and racial inequality as reasons why so many end up incarcerated. Without mentioning these two systemic forces by name, she spoke directly to the effects that these causes, if left unchecked, yield in society. I appreciate that she boldly speaks to this and raises her voice yet again for the value and worth of the marginalized. Opportunities, education, and resources should not be allotted to people based solely on their immigration status, wealth, skin color, or any other reason. Isn't this the heart of social justice work at its core? Gandhi spoke to this universal truth more than 50 years ago when he said, the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. I was inspired by Darlene's quote from Khalil Gibran, our shared favorite poet. I'd like to close with this quote from Khalil Gibran in honor of Darlene and her life's journey. Progress lies not in enhancing what is, but in advancing what will be. I see the work she does for Defy Ventures in this light. May we all learn to recognize and value the humanity in each person we meet, just as Darlene has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.